There's uh, this experience I'm going to guess some of you have had. My, my hope is many of you have had this experience with, with music. Have you ever had a, had a song in your life that you heard like maybe for the first time and it, that maybe the chorus, the words of the chorus grabbed you or maybe it was just the tune was, was fun and, and played along in your head and so you just, it just became kind of instantly a song that you really liked and so you played it and you, you listened to it. And then maybe you even began to learn the words and, and sing along. And then, and this is the experience I hope many of us have, have had, there came a moment when maybe it was because you were paying attention to what the lyrics actually said, or maybe you, you found a story, you heard a story of why the lyrics say what they do, the, the background behind it, and all of a sudden the song took on a deeper meaning for you. A couple of examples that, uh, to, to sort of highlight this, how many of you are Beatles fans? Any Beatles fans in here? All right, yeah, even if you're not a Beatles fan, most of you have probably heard the song, Hey Jude. Right? Take a sad song and, and make it better. Like this is, it's just a, a classic song when you, when you hear it. It's a song that it brings strangers together just to, just to sing together whenever, whenever it's on. It's this wonderful song. Well, what not everybody knows is that Paul McCartney wrote this song to Jules, to Julian Lennon, John Lennon's son, when he was about five years old. And his mom and dad, John Lennon and his, his first wife at the time, were going through a divorce. And so Paul McCartney wrote, Hey, Jules, to start. It got changed to Jude as a song to provide this, uh, this little, you know, five-year-old kindergarten-age student with a positive word in his life, take a sad song and make it better. There's other lyrics that talk about sticking with relationships, even through the difficult times. A deeper level of meaning. Here's another example of this. Um, I don't know if, if any of you know the Banana Boat song. If you aren't sure whether you know the Banana Boat song, you might recognize it when I go, Deo, Deo. Yeah. Uh, made famous by Hera Belafonte, but some of you in my generation and younger are going to go, well, I don't know who he is, but it was in Beetlejuice. It's this fun song, uh, the Jamaican roots. It's fun, to, it's fun to sing, but it's funny when you watch people sing it, like they, they make the sounds, but I, I think people aren't even sure what the words are of the song. But when you know a little bit more about the background. Harry Belafonte actually uh, didn't write the song. The song uh, is believed to have Jamaican folk roots, and it was believed to have been sung by the uh, workers on the banana boats that worked the night shift, unloading bananas from the boats in colonial Jamaica. Likely they would be unloading all night, and then in the morning they would be paid very poorly for how many bunches of bananas they took off the boat. Ultimately, the banana boat song is a, is a song about people of color doing the most grueling work and not being treated well in colonial society. When you know this, when you start to hear the words and think about the words and sing the words, like they do, they take on another whole level of meaning. Daylight comes and me want to go home. And imagine the yearning for family, right? Or taliman, taliman, tally me banana. It's about counting the bananas so that 
so that I can be paid, have some sustenance to feed my family, another layer of meaning. This month, we're looking at stories of the Bible with this lens that that we just took for music, and we're taking it to the Bible and saying, if we know the deeper story, is there more there? Like, we're looking at classic stories, and, and lots of those, many here, learned first in VBS, or, or maybe there's a cultural telling of the story, or maybe you heard it in Sunday school, and there were kind of these surface lessons that we learned, and there's nothing wrong with any of those, any of those surface lessons. But this month, we're saying, what if, we, what if we turn those stories inside out? Is it possible if we know the story behind the story that there's more that God has to teach us or to show us and some of these classic Bible stories. So today, we are going to look at Joseph and his coat. Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll dive in. Holy God, thank you for the opportunity to be together today and for, for these stories for your word that teaches us and shows us more about your way. God, help us today to learn together, to grow together through your word, through these words, through our thoughts, or even our feelings. God, may you deepen our relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. Strengthen our knowledge of your love and inspire us again to share it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I need to start with an important question before we dive into the story. How many of you have seen some version of Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoats? All right, quite a, quite a few hands. It's okay if you haven't. In fact, it, it might, after I tell you what I'm going to tell you, it might be better if you haven't seen Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. How many of you have seen, just out of curiosity, the Donny Osmond version of Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? I, I can't remember. I've got to ask my mom. I don't think it's her, but it's somebody, I think, in our family who calls it the Dreamy Donnie version. Uh, how many remember Jim Boger playing Pharaoh in the Clay Church rendition of Joseph? Uh, there's, a hand, there's a couple hands up here for, uh, for that version as well. It was before my time here at, uh, here at Clay Church. So we are going to read a passage from the story of Joseph today that is not in the musical. For you Broadway fans, I'm sorry. Uh, we're we're going to take a part that you may not know as well. Um, I will say this. If you want a fun challenge later today, what I want you to do is take the verses we read today and see if you can set this part of the story to music and add it in to your own version of Joseph and the dream coat. So this passage is almost at the end of Joseph's story. It's near the end of the book of Genesis. And it's going to tell us that Joseph and his father Jacob have settled in Goshen, which is this really rich area of the Nile, great farming area of the, of the Nile. And, uh, and this is what it says, starting Genesis 47, verse 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased, increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. That's some good genes right there. When the time drew near for Israel to die, 
he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, Joseph said. Swear to me, Israel or Jacob said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Let me, before we kind of dive into this passage, well, I guess we are diving in. Before we get to the heart of the message, let me, let me share two, um, two things that kind of trip people up when they read this passage. The first is, sometimes Jacob is called Jacob in the Bible, and sometimes he's called Israel in the Bible. And Sometimes it's confusing to figure out why. Let me give you a little hint as you read the stories of Israel and Jacob in the, in the future. Often when it says Jacob, Jacob is having a hard time trusting God. When God calls him Israel, when the Bible says Israel, it's when he is trusting God and God's story. So just something to play with as, as you go on. You hear that interchange in this story today. The second is people will read this and they'll be like, like, what, what is with the hand under the thigh thing? Because that's weird. And if we think about it, it is weird to us today. Like if somebody said, I want you to promise, and then I want you to put your hand under my thigh, you'd be like, you know, like you'd slap them. You'd be like, no, personal boundaries, my friend. We do not do this. So to understand this, we, we need to know the hand under the thigh, we might think of it as kind of that handshake of today. So right, when we make a, when we make a deal with somebody or, or make a promise to somebody, we say, let's shake on it, and we'll shake hands right? Or you could think of it as a pinky swear as well. Um, but right, we, we're, we're affirming this covenant, this promise that we're making. Well, in biblical times, the way that you affirmed that promise was to put a hand under, uh, to put a hand under the thigh. So as strange as we think it is, when you see that, just think, well, it's kind of like they're, they're just doing a handshake about this. I know, like, put a hand under the thigh and, and it just doesn't have the same ring as uh, hand, you know, shake on it. It doesn't work. So we're going to take that now and set it aside so that we can get into this, into this passage, into this story. And here's my guess. My guess is you heard me read that and you thought, well, it's no wonder this was left out of the musical because there's not much there. Okay, so... Jacob knows that he's in his old age and he's going to be passing, and so he tells Joseph the plans he'd like for after he has passed. And you might think, well, there, there's, a, there's a nice message there about letting loved ones know your intentions after you're, after you're passing. It's a, it's a good practice. But is there really anything else in this story that we might see or learn? And on the surface, maybe not, but, but I think there is. And I think we begin to see it if we can take the story of Joseph and turn it inside out. So we're going to look at the whole story of Joseph. I'm going to share the story of Joseph. And my hope is I'm going to share some things that you're like, yeah, I know that. And I'm going to share some things and you're like, wait, that's not how Andrew Lloyd Webber told the story. And I'm going to share some, some things that hopefully you don't know about this story. So we're going to we'll just start at the beginning. 
Uh, Jamie, I want to thank Jamie Leonard. She's done our, our uh, felt boards all month for the, for the stories. Uh, she was extra busy this week. Like, there are a lot of characters in this story. But what happens when we think about Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is we focus everything on, on Joseph, and we kind of lose the rest of the story. Like, Joseph becomes the good guy, and every, all the, the brothers are kind of the, the bad guy. And we just kind of leave it there. But there's, there's so much more here. So we're going to start at the beginning, right? Joseph has, uh, uh, there are 12 brothers. Jacob has 12 children. Ten from his first wife, the first wife that he married. He has two wives at the same time. Ten from the first wife that he married. And two, Joseph and his little brother Benjamin from the second woman that he married, his second wife. Now, we know from the story that Jacob likes Joseph best of all of his sons. So, quick question, we relate for a moment. How many of you think you were the favorite sibling? Anyone? Just a hand or two went up. How many of you think that your, the other was, one of your other brothers and sisters was the favorite sibling in your house? Oh, oh gosh. Okay. Uh, thank you for your honesty. We're going to have more questions, so feel free to keep being honest. How many of you were the only child and know you were the favorite? <laughs> okay. All right. Not, not as many of those. Um, how many think that parents should not have favorites? Yeah, right? There's already this odd thing happening in this story. This, it feels a little tense, and it's going to get worse because Jacob, Israel, He says, Joseph is my favorite son, and then he gives him a coat. And we need to pause here at the coat, and I'm really sorry to disappoint those of you um, who who love the dream coat, but uh, the Hebrew translation for the coat is, uh, it means striped coat. There's, there's no technicolor. Uh, that actually, the idea of many colors comes from the King James. It was a, a kind of a creative take on translation that said coat of many colors. But it doesn't say that it's striped. It could just be like the stripes from the goat, goat the goat skin that was used to make the coat. Um, it, we don't really know much. And I think one of the things that happens is we get so caught up in what the coat looked like and like the colors that we miss what it really signified. What it really signified was an emphasis on not just this idea that Joseph is the favorite, but Jacob seems to be saying, Joseph, you're going to be the one who gets the double share of my inheritance. The firstborn would get a double share of the inheritance. And the reason was that the firstborn would then be responsible for the entire family. All the kids would get coats, all all of Jacob gave all his children coats. But what's significant isn't the color of the coat, it's that it's that Jacob is giving Joseph a second coat, which seems to be saying, you are going to be the behor, the, the firstborn, the one who gets the double inheritance. And his brothers, they are not particularly happy. But it gets worse. Joseph then has some dreams. And as he thinks about those dreams, he realizes that they're they're telling him that his brothers and his whole family are going to bow down to him. But it gets worse. He tells them that. Hey, by the way, I've had these dreams, and it says you all are going to bow down to me. How many of you have had a sibling that taunted you? 
Yeah. How many of you had a sibling that you taunted? How many of you taunted a sibling to the point where you think they might have wanted to remove you from the equation of the family? How many of you were taunted by a sibling that you think um, they, that you, wait, did I do that backwards? Well, anyway, you get the idea. How many had siblings that acted on the, no, just kidding, we're not going there. Right, where we're going is this story is messy. And it's not just messy in this moment, it's messy as we move into this story. There's deceit in this family story, and broken relationships, and stolen birthright, and parents favoring one child over another, and brothers who are having a hard time dealing with these relationships. Right? It's messy. Maybe it's messy because our humanity and family relationships, our relationships and community, they too can be messy. Maybe a sibling hasn't plotted to kill us or sell us into slavery, but most of us, I'll bet, have had some broken relationship along the way or some messiness in our family or in our church family or know somebody who's going through that. In Joseph's story, it goes to the extreme, right? The brothers, they start to plot to kill Joseph. And Joseph comes out, and Judah is really the instigator. Judah is the, is the one in the family, and he's like, let's, let's kill him. And the other brothers are like, okay. But Reuben, remember I said that this story isn't as simple as, as good guys and bad guys. Reuben, the actual eldest brother, the actual Bechor, of the family, he takes responsibility and he says, let's not, let's not kill him. We don't, want to, we don't want that blood on our hands. Let's throw him in a pit because Reuben thinks, well, I'm, I'll come back and take him out of the pit and take him home. And we'll, I'm sure Reuben's thinking, we'll, we'll work all of this out. But then we don't know what happens to Reuben. Reuben kind of disappears for a moment from the story and Judah instigates again and he says, well, let's, there, there are these Midianites coming by. Let's sell our brother to the Midianites and they can take him into slavery in Egypt. And Reuben then comes back. He's like, what have you done? What are we going to do? How are we going to tell our father about this? And they say, well, let's take, let's take his coat, dip it in blood, We'll just make dad think that he was attacked and killed by wild animals. Right? This story is messy and hurtful. It's where anger and vengeance and deceit, this is where they lead. And then we see this cycle begin to repeat in Joseph's story. And the cycle goes like this, right? The cycle, it starts with gifts and possibilities. It starts with, it starts with a, a coat. And then our human reactions to the hurt of relationships bogs the story down. And in each, each time we see this cycle, the coat is stripped. It's, it's taken away. And then each time in the story, Joseph ends up in the pit, right? His brothers throw him in the pit. And then the cycle repeats. He's sold into slavery in Egypt, and he ends up in the house of Potiphar. And is Potiphar a good guy or a bad guy? Well, I don't know. 
Potiphar just wants what's best for Potiphar, and Potiphar realizes that when his servant Joseph is in the house, things go well. Joseph's God seems to favor him. So he gives Joseph all this power in the, in the household. Only Potiphar's wife then essentially sets Joseph up. It says that there was sexual impropriety even though Joseph didn't do the wrong thing. And Joseph goes from gift and possibility in this household to coat being stripped and being thrown back into a pit, in this case, a dungeon. Although it's interesting, the Hebrew uses the same word. It wants us to see this cycle of the mess and the messiness of human relationships, the pit of despair that we find ourselves in. But I think the story also wants us to see this. The story doesn't end in the pit. God isn't through with God's family, with God's people yet. No matter how messy it gets, no matter how much they've messed up the story, God isn't finished. So Pharaoh comes along, and God actually uses Pharaoh, an outsider to the story, to turn the story around. The cycle shifts. This time, Joseph is brought out of the pit. This time, Joseph is given a coat. And this time, their gifts and possibilities as Joseph, with the gift of his dreams, is able to rise in Pharaoh's household and save not just Pharaoh, but the entire land. God is at work saving the entire land from famine. And when we begin to see those cycles in the story, when we begin to see what God is doing, we can begin to notice that it isn't just in Joseph's story. Right? Jacob sends the brothers in the midst of the famine to Egypt, and who is there to greet them? They don't know this, but it's Joseph. And God uses Pharaoh and Joseph to care for the refugees in this story, to make sure that God's people are, are cared for. And you remember Judah in this story? Judah is kind of the jerk brother who says, let's kill him and then let's throw him in the pit. Well, Judah has this, there's another little story right in the middle about Judah and a prostitute. You can read that one on your own. We're not going to preach that one today. But let's just say Judah doesn't come out looking very good. But something happens because in this story now, Judah comes back. And as Joseph is kind of toying with his brothers, he sends them home and says, you need to bring Benjamin with you for me to help you. And Jacob doesn't want to let Benjamin go because he still doesn't know Joseph is alive. And it's Judah who steps in. Judah, who wanted the favorite son removed, now is stepping in for who Benjamin, now the favorite son. Judah says, I'll put my life on the line for Benjamin. Restoration. Sacrifice. And then we reach this point in the story. Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. He's saved them. He's moved them to Egypt along with his, his dad. It's been a joyful reunion. But the brothers, they're still not sure that they can trust Joseph. And even Jacob has this question. Israel has this question for his son. And so he pulls him aside and he says, Look, I know my days are numbered. And I was tasked by God to settle in the promised land. 
And so I want to ask you to take me back there. I want to ask you to be true to God's story, what God's desire is for God's people. And the question becomes, what will Joseph do? This ask, it's not an easy one. We're going to find out that Pharaoh allows this to happen, but, but Joseph doesn't know what Pharaoh's going to do. Pharaoh is still the ruler in the land. To even ask Pharaoh to say, hey, by the way, thanks for welcoming us here, but we actually don't want to stay here forever. We want to go again. Like, how is that going to be received? How is it going to be interpreted? Pharaoh pulled Joseph out of the pit. He's the one who clothed him. Pharaoh has, has been like a father to Joseph. Joseph now has to choose between the power of the empire and this story of, of God. To trust God's story and take his father's remains back or deny his father's request in order to avoid confronting Pharaoh, to stay comfortable. Joseph in this moment, is about to make a choice that will forever affect all of God's people. And he chooses, despite how challenging it is, he chooses God's story. Not the easy path, not the path that's going to guarantee him riches and power and comfort forever. He chooses the path that God set God's people on. When we look at this whole story, right, we see the messiness, we see the struggle, but we also begin to see that God is at work all the way through. And we begin to, to understand what, it, what does it mean then to trust God's story? One of the things it means is this, no matter how messy it gets, no matter how messy life gets, God doesn't abandon us. God doesn't abandon Joseph. But God also doesn't abandon the brothers and Jacob in the midst of this story either. We're able to see when, when Jacob and Joseph, when they make stories that it, when they make stories, when they make decisions that are true to God's story, they, they experience blessing and encouragement. When they make decisions that's about themselves, about serving themselves, about serving the empire, we see how much messier the story gets. When they make decisions about sacrifice and, and toward goodness, we see how they receive God's blessing when they make decisions about retribution or decisions out of anger and judgment. We see the mess it creates. And yet through it all, God doesn't abandon. In fact, when Joseph, when his brothers make decisions they're about humility and sacrifice and forgiveness. Restoration happens. The restoration that we seek in our lives, in family and relationships, in all aspects of our lives, it's found by trusting God's story. I think sometimes we think when things are broken, like we can't fix it, and that's actually true. We can't fix it. 
but God's love and God's forgiveness can. You see, we have the opportunity to make, make choices in our lives. Yeah, some of the messes we live in, they are well beyond our control. And some of them we've caused for ourselves. But the truth is, however the messes came to be, we get to choose how we respond to the messiness of life. We get to choose how we respond to the broken relationships. We get to choose how we respond to the hatred and the injustice in the world. Trusting God's story is choosing a way of mercy and goodness and forgiveness. It's choosing the story of faithfulness and grace. It's, it's what's at the heart of who we are as the church. Right at the heart of this story is, a, is the heart of who we are as a church. We are a people, a church family that make messes sometimes, that live in messes sometimes. But at the heart of it all, we are people who trust God to judge. Trust God to act. Trust God to be present even in the mess. And then we're a people with a role to show the kind of grace and forgiveness and goodness that shows others who God is, who Jesus is. I had a chance a couple of years ago, I was having a conversation with a young woman who had had just a terrible experience with the church. She was in high school and college at the time. It was her family church, and, and it, it was filled. The story just broke, broke my heart. It broke her heart. It, it was filled with deceit and judgment and, and just the church not being who the church is, is called to be. For several years, she said she stayed away from, from church altogether. She didn't want to have anything to do with, with church. She said she actually, uh, she actually tried to be an agnostic or an atheist during this time. Like, she, she just kept trying to say, all right, I, I don't believe in any of this. I don't, I don't, I don't want to believe in, in, in God or the church anymore. And, and she said, this is one of my favorite parts of her story. She kept saying, she's like, but God wouldn't let me. Like, it just, God just sort of kept sending a person into my life or, a, or, or a, a follower of Jesus into my life to say the right thing at the right time. Like, like, I'm here. I'm here whenever you're ready. I'm here. God just wouldn't let her pull away entirely. And she said over, over time, each of those encounters led her to see God and the church with a different lens. Right, she, she realized that, that the church was, could be made up of people who were willing to admit their faults and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry this happened to you. She began to encounter people who didn't approach things that happened with judgment and hatred and anger, but instead approached with grace and acceptance and love she realized that that's what God's story looks like. A story she just couldn't hide from. She needed somebody to say, 
yeah, I've messed up. We've messed up. And I'm sorry. God's story for God's people. She needed to rediscover the way of forgiveness. She needed to rediscover the story of God's love through the people of the church living it the very best that they could. As I read Joseph's story, thought about this inside story beyond just the Joseph being faithful, which is certainly important. It struck me that I think the world today needs a better story. The world needs a better story. The world needs a better story than snap judgment and hatred. The world needs a a better story than labeling those who think another way as the enemy. The world needs a better story than continuing violence and war, responding with an eye for an eye and and standing in the way of, of peace. The world needs a story of restoration and reconciliation and hope and peace. The world needs a a story grounded in, in values that lead to goodness and restoration, values like humility and self-sacrifice, values like grace and forgiveness and love. The story of Joseph and the coats, right? It shows us the difference between living in these stories. It shows what happens when we choose a story of empire and power and self-serving and doing anything we can to get ahead. And it shows us what comes from the story when we give our lives to God and we trust and we're willing to sacrifice and accept and love and forgive one another. And Jesus teaches us the way to live by God's story. Which is it's hard is being willing to give our lives for one another. The question for us becomes what story will we live by? What story will you trust with your life? What story will you tell with your life? Amen.